Hi guys, I'm Cassie. This is Crime and Cassie and all things creepy. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday. And if not, I hope 2023 is much better to you. Did anyone make New Year's resolutions? I usually do and I never stick to them. Hopefully I didn't make any and I do something positive. I don't know. Is that how it works? I am doing dry January though, so we'll see how that goes. So far, so good. If you're new here, then welcome. Every episode, I like to talk to you guys about a true crime case that has been on my brain lately. Um, spooky episodes are coming soon. I'm gonna wait a little bit longer and there's a reason for it that you'll have to see. And it is in regards to kind of something I just mentioned. So you'll see, you'll know when it comes, you'll understand. So just be patient. But until then, enjoy some true crime, go back, binge them, whatever. And if you are returning, then welcome back. And I love you. I appreciate you guys so much. I've been kind of sporadic with my videos lately just because life, the holidays, did I say life? So make sure you are hitting that subscribe button so that you don't miss anything. You guys can follow me everywhere on social media at CrimeXCassie. If you are listening to this in podcast form, throw a review in there, baby. To kick off 2023, I wanted to do a big one. So that means serial killer. And I've been trying to think of a case to do related to the gay community. Um, and there are several I plan on doing, but as I kind of mentioned in the last episode, it has to click for me in that moment. Everything has to feel right for me to get in the right headspace to do it. And I had heard of this particular case where young gay men had been lured to the woods then tortured and murdered. But after researching, I can't find anything to confirm that any of them were even gay. In fact, they seem to be young, vulnerable men who were down on their luck and lured there under false pretenses. Regardless, this serial killer in question was so awful, so grotesque, I cannot believe how crazy this case was. So without further ado, today we're gonna be talking about the hog trail killings. If you're wondering why it's called the hog trail killings or the hog trail murders or the hog trail killer, it's just because wild boars tend to frequent the areas where the bodies are found. We're going to start the story off on January 1st, 1996. How fitting. That wasn't on purpose. Susan and Wayne Brown are at their home in Northport, Florida, and they're probably expecting to have a pretty chill day. It's January 1st. Everything's closed. Maybe they're nursing a hangover. I don't know. Actually, I doubt that because this happened at like 5.30, 6 in the morning. So I doubt they were hungover. But this was to be no happy new year. They live in a rural area with a pretty big piece of property that is up against a wooded area. They have two hunting dogs that live outside. So Wayne's going to go and let them out of their pens. I also have two hunting dogs, but they live inside. And the only thing they hunt is my kitchen floor when I'm cooking. So the pups are running around and one of them goes to the base of a palm tree and seems to be really interested in something. And Wayne looks over and he's like, what are you doing over there, little fella? He then starts screaming for Susan. Susan comes running down from the house and to her horror sees a human skull. They call police and soon enough, it's a full-blown crime scene. They start interviewing the Browns and they find out that some weird stuff has been happening lately. 
Turns out the dogs have been bringing home these weird bones for about a month or so. And Susan and Wayne are like, maybe it was from a deer, maybe it was from a cow carcass that people just dropped off. Again, this is a rural area and it wouldn't be that uncommon for something like that to happen. They start examining said bones and they discover a human arm and then a human leg. And then they start combing over all of the woods and they end up finding the rest of the remains. But that's the weird thing. That's all they find. They don't find any personal items, no clothing, no ID, nothing, just bones. Almost immediately, it's a huge story on all of the local news stations and the medical examiner takes the bones back to the lab. He starts examining them and determines it's a white male, about 25 to 35 years of age, about six foot three with a heavy build. He then declares it a homicide when he discovers knife marks on the pelvic bones. Initially, police are a little bit suspicious of Susan and Wayne. After all, the bones were found on their property. The dogs have been bringing these bones and they didn't immediately call the police. Also, Susan was very calm when she called the police and she didn't even call 911. She called the regular police line. So they're like, okay, why were you not freaking out? But after talking to them and kind of checking out their lives and alibis, Susan and Wayne Brown are eliminated as suspects. Happy New Year to Susan and Wayne. Can you imagine starting off like at the crack of dawn, January 1st, and this is, this is your day. This is how your year is starting out. Happy 1996. Now police are left wondering, how are we going to identify not only the suspect, but the victim? There are no clothing, there are no personal items. So they check the missing persons report for anyone matching that description, but nope, nothing. Just a few months into that investigation, on April 17th, 1996, two of those detectives get a call from detectives in Charlotte County, which is about 30 miles away. There's been another discovery, also in a wooded area behind a new housing development. I guess two county employees were on break, they were walking around, and they stumbled upon, you guessed it, a human skull. The skull was by itself, and after searching the area, they find a frickin' torso that, it's safe to say, belongs to the skull. It seems as though it's been there about a week, maybe a little bit longer. Again, this is Florida. Decomp happens very quickly, and soon enough, they find a pelvis. Then, off in the distance, one of the detectives sees something that kind of catches his eye. He gets a little bit closer and sees, I think it was carpet padding, but he sees something sticking out of it and it ended up being a human hand. He lifts up that carpet padding or whatever it was. He can see that it's a deceased white male. As detectives describe him, he's fresh, meaning he's only been there about 10 to 12 hours. Again, this is Florida, decomp happens quickly. This is a body. They can see that he has ligature marks on his wrists, on his neck, on his legs, and... This next part is a lot, it's graphic, so you might wanna fast forward 30 seconds. This is a lot. You have kids around, earmuff them. The male was completely nude and it seems as though his genitals were surgically removed. Police see disturbing things all the time and I'm sure as sad and as horrifying as that can be, you get somewhat desensitized to it. I mean, you have to to be able to do your job, I'm sure, but this was next level horrifying. Detectives surmise that the genitals were probably removed in an attempt to hide evidence because if you're engaging in a sexual act with someone, you're bound to leave evidence there. They luckily were able to recover fingerprints from this victim because he again is quote unquote fresh. 
They run his prints through the database and it comes back as Richard Montgomery. Richard was 21 years old and when detectives inform his family and friends, they're crushed. At the time, he was living with his sister and his brother-in-law and they had a young child that Richard would kind of help take care of and they kind of, you know, helped take care of Richard. They end up talking to Richard's good friend, John, and John says he was, you know, a good uncle. People loved him. He was so full of life. He said he was, quote, good with women. Richard's young. He's staying with his sister, so he's always trying to make money somehow. He'll do construction jobs, odd jobs, this job, that job, whatever. He's young. He's 21. He's just trying to make money, go out to the bar, talk to some ladies. Detectives then are trying to ID the other victim. Remember the one with the skull and then the torso found near it. Well, while they're examining this torso, they can see that there's still a little bit of tissue left on either his back or his shoulder. I've heard both, so I can only assume that it's gonna be kind of like where your back meets your shoulder and they can see a tattoo. They make that tattoo public and meanwhile, they're still combing over the crime scene. They've collected some evidence, luckily, because this time it wasn't just bones. They did find Richard's body and while examining Richard's body, they located a paint chip near his hip. So they send off that paint chip along with other fibers and hairs and they send it off to the lab to be tested. Before they're about to leave the crime scene, they notice one last detail that I'm sure sent a chill up their spine. They notice these markings in some of the trees and upon closer examination, they can see that the marks line up with the ligature marks on Richard's body meaning these victims were bound to these trees and then tortured. Within hours, the news is making its way through the community and that's when one of the detectives is like, wait, I heard about these bones that had been discovered on New Year's Day over in Northport. All of the detectives start comparing notes and they find out that there are a lot of similarities. They're in the woods, they're nude, they have no belongings, literally no other evidence of who the victims are and who did this. Detectives are like, okay, we got to go up to that crime scene. We have to check it out. It's been a few months, but we need to take a look at those trees. They do that and wouldn't you know it, ligature marks. So now they know we've got a serial killer. And if we don't stop him, he's just going to do it again. At this point, Richard is their only identified victim because thank God he was found quickly and they were able to run his fingerprints. They know he was young. He didn't have a lot of money and his family didn't either. It said that he drank a lot and he kind of stayed wherever. The last time his friend John saw him, they were out drinking and someone was quote, busting his balls about being broke. And he's like, well, I'm about to go make 200 bucks. He then said he'd be back in a couple hours and didn't really give any other details. Richard was last seen on the edge of the road, kind of like he was waiting for somebody. So of course the police are wondering, is the person that offered Richard this gig paying 200 bucks, possibly his killer. Other than that, police have nothing. So they're informing the media, they're keeping tight with them, giving them information, hoping that it'll generate some leads. They end up getting a call regarding that tattoo that was on the torso that they found. A woman calls in panicked and she's panicked either about her brother or her son. So I have heard it was his mom or his sister. Either way, she called panicked because she recognized that tattoo. They're able to identify the man as 25-year-old Kenneth Lee Smith, or as his friends and family called him, Kenny. Kenny had recently moved from Naples, Florida, and like Richard, Kenny was living a somewhat transient lifestyle. 
he was young and really just trying to find his way. He would stay at missions and detectives said that, quote, he'd do anything for a beer. At this point, detectives are starting to see a pattern here. Young, impressionable men that are eager to make some money. They quickly set up a task force and they have a criminal profiler come down and they determine that yes, we do have a serial killer and it appears that he's a sexual sadist, meaning he's turned on by the torture. The worst of the worst kind of monster, in my opinion. Then a tip comes in. It's from an inmate in Marion County Correctional Institute by the name of David Payton. David says he was in Fort Myers, Florida. A guy pulled up and offered him some beer. David gets in his car and they drive off. He says that the man gave him beer, Valium, and some Mary Jane. He then asked David if he wants to make some money. And David's like, yeah, I want to make money. What's the gig? Well, the gig is to pose nude, bound to a tree. David, much like the other victims, is eager for some money. So he's like, okay. These are men, by the way, they're not going to have the same fear a woman would have if somebody asked us to do that kind of thing. You're not ever going to think you're the target of something like that as a male. And that makes me really sad and mad for them. David and this man, they turn towards the woods. And as they make their way back, the car ends up getting stuck in the mud. David's like, no worries. I'll get out. I'll give you a little push. And the man's demeanor totally changes. He's like, no, you get in the driver's seat. I'll push. At this point, David's antennas are kind of going up and he's like, this guy's a little bit weird. So he turns and he takes a peek in the back seat. He sees a rope, a knife, and a tarp. And he's like, oh no, this isn't about photography. When the man gives the car a push, David's like, not today. And he takes off in this guy's car. He flies out of there. And mind you, he's under the influence of beer, value, and weed. I'd personally give this guy a pass to drink and drive right now, but the police did not. They pull him over, but it's not just because of his erratic driving. The car was reported stolen, which is why now detectives are talking to him in jail. That night, he had been charged with stealing the car and a DUI. He tried explaining everything to arresting officers, but I guess he had a pretty extensive criminal record and they didn't believe him. The detectives talking to him now are like, okay, we got to see who reported this stolen. The car comes back to a Daniel Conahan senior, but he's not who reported it missing. It ended up being his 42 year old son, Daniel Conahan Jr. Daniel was a former Navy man from Chicago who now lived with his parents in Punta Gorda, Florida. Daniel was originally from Charlotte, North Carolina, and as a teenager, he discovered he was gay and his parents were not happy to say the least. They actually sent him off to a psychiatrist to try to cure him of his homosexuality. They run a background check on this guy and see that he was dishonorably discharged from the Navy. They end up talking to NCIS and find out that Daniel had twice approached other sailors about something sexual, and when they rebuffed his advances, he hit one of the guys with a rock. They find out Daniel is a licensed practical nurse, so he has medical knowledge, and that genital removal looked surgical. They end up talking to a former roommate of Daniel's who says one of his fantasies was bondage. Daniel Conahan Jr. is now their prime suspect, so they have round-the-clock surveillance on him. They don't have enough to arrest him quite yet, but they are going to watch his every move. They want to see his pattern, but also they want to make sure he's unable to hurt anyone else. 
they start to see some disturbing habits. They see that he's driving through homeless camps. He's driving through places that transients would just frequent like bus stations, things like that. AKA people down on their luck and desperate to make some money. He would also take crazy precautions, making left turn after left turn to ensure that nobody was following him. Police said it was like a starving animal looking for food. Police then have a crazy idea. They know what kind of victim Daniel might be looking for, so they recruit one of their young studly officers for a little undercover mission. Officer Scott Clemens fits that victim profile. So they see that Daniel goes into the park one night and they send Officer Clemens in on foot. He is fully wired up, they have a bug on him. Scott's like, okay, how am I gonna get him to notice me? How are we gonna strike up a conversation? So after a few minutes, he sees that Daniel enters the restroom and Scott kind of enters it while Daniel's exiting and Daniel kind of makes a U-turn, sees Scott, comes back into the restroom and then they strike up a conversation. Scott gives him a fake name obviously and says, oh, I just took the bus in from Georgia. He says, I'm not really familiar with the area. I don't have any family here. They start walking side by side and Daniel's kind of giving him the vibes. He starts leading Scott deeper and deeper into the park and he ends up asking him, have you ever hustled before? And Scott's like, yeah. Daniel then propositions Scott for sex and says, hey, you wanna make a quick 20 bucks? Officer Scott's like, yeah, but I need to see the 20. And Daniel's like, well, I don't have it on me. Let's go take a ride to the ATM. There's no way in hell that officers are gonna let Scott get into the car with Daniel. So they're listening, they're on pins and needles. Scott's like, yeah, I'm not gonna get in the car, but is there anything else I can do for you? And Daniel's like, well, would you be interested in getting naked and taking some pictures in the woods with a little bit of bondage. Scott's like, uh, I don't really have time. I'm kind of in a rush. At that point, Daniel looks like he starts to get suspicious and then he just leaves. So they conduct a traffic stop on US 41 in Punta Gorda. They explain to him that, hey, you're a suspect in these murders. Do you want to come and talk to us? He agrees to talk to officers and they're trying to keep things low key so they don't spook him. And they're like, hey, we don't have to go to the station. Why don't we just go to a motel and let's just talk it out and see what's going on. They take him to a motel where the room had been previously wired with video and audio and it has a team in the next room listening to everything. He was friendly, he's talking to the officers, he pretty much thinks he's smarter than them and he has control of the situation. He's like, oh, I read about the murders in the paper. During the interview, they're at like a little table and it has a white tablecloth covering the table. And what Daniel doesn't know is they can see the tablecloth shaking violently because he's so nervous, his whole leg is bouncing. They ask him, you know, are you into bondage? And he's like, no. And they're like, well, we have you recorded. You just propositioned one of our officers if he wanted to be tied up. And he's like, oh, it was just a passing remark. No biggie. Maybe I threw that out there. I can't remember. What are you gonna do? He ends up admitting to it and saying, oh, I was just embarrassed. I didn't wanna say what I was into sexually. But Daniel doesn't know all of this evidence that they have. Detectives say, I know you're probably gonna to wanna to call home and let your folks know what's happening, but what you'll discover is we're currently searching your house right now. His jaw is on the floor. They end up finding rope, pliers, a paring knife, tarps. They're noticing that the paint on his vehicle looks 
suspiciously similar to the paint chips that they found on Richard. So they collect paint chips from his vehicle and then they send them off to be tested. He's full on denying everything and they don't get a confession. And I don't understand why they would do this because I feel like they have enough to arrest him, but they let him go and they keep surveilling him. Then a Fort Myers detective approaches them and says, hey, we've got a similar case. This victim was picked up. He was also given narcotics. He was driven to the woods. Then the man ties him up to the tree. He starts taking pictures and then he comes closer and he's like, hold on, let me adjust this really quick. And then he pins the man to the tree by his ligatures. The victim then pretends to pass out and it saved his life. Detectives go back to this victim and they give him a photo lineup and boom, picks out Daniel, no problem. They're now able to arrest him for rape and attempted murder. He's off the streets for now, but in order to keep him behind bars, they need to get these murder charges going. Luckily, that paint sample comes back and it is a match to the paint chips found on Richard. He would tell his victims, oh, it's just light bondage, but he had this way of, I guess, cinching the rope so that they couldn't escape and then he would strangle them. Unfortunately, there's not enough evidence to tie him to Kenny's murder, so he stands trial for Richard's. Daniel pleads not guilty, and after an eight-day trial, he's convicted for first-degree murder. And he gets the death penalty because Florida. It's estimated that there are possibly 16 victims out there in total, and in fact, he is strongly suspected in the baffling case of the Fort Myers 8. Fort Myers, Florida is reportedly one of the safest cities in Florida, but on March 23rd, 2007, about three miles from downtown Fort Myers, 30 feet into the undergrowth of dense woodlands near Rockfell and Arcadia Street, a land surveyor thinks that he sees some animal skulls. He gets a little bit closer and sees, oh no, these are two human skulls. So he calls Fort Myers PD and they end up coming there and they seal it off and now it's a crime scene. They spend hours sifting through the dirt and they can now see this is a mass burial site. There were over 1,000 bones belonging to eight individuals within 50 yards of one another and there was little to no effort to conceal the bodies. And again, there was no other evidence other than the bones. No clothing, no personal items, nothing. They collect everything for DNA, for dental records, and they determine that all the victims were male, Caucasian, or Hispanic between the ages of 18 to 49, and that they had been dumped between 1980 to 2000. Based on the dental care and the fact that they all had healed breaks and fractures, it's believed that these victims had fallen on hard times or were possibly transients or drifters. One of the very early theories was that funeral homes had been dumping these bodies there and then pocketing the money that families had given them to cremate their loved ones. And yeah, that sounds far-fetched, but it actually happened. Turns out funeral homes in Florida and Georgia were getting paid to cremate people, but never did. Instead, they would just bury the bodies. One in Georgia allegedly did it with 300 bodies. Police look into that avenue, but it looks more like this is a serial killer's dumping ground. If it had been a funeral home, there would be women, maybe children too, but these are all male all similar characteristics. The media ends up publishing facial reconstructions a few times and they get better and better. At first, it's really hard to tell it could be anybody. It 
kind of barely looks human, but they get better and better. And ultimately, some families start reaching out. They end up identifying one victim as Eric Kohler, who was 21 of Port Charlotte. He was living with his grandparents and ended up vanishing in 1995. They then identified John Blevins, who was 26 at the time of his disappearance. He was from Fort Myers. He also disappeared in 1995, but sadly was never reported missing. The third man was Jonathan Taihei, who was 24 and had last been seen alive in October of 1995. Jonathan was unfortunately also never reported missing. For so many years, those had been the only three victims identified of the Fort Myers 8, but what's crazy is just a few months ago in September of 2022, 30-year-old Robert Ronald Soden, or as he was called Bobby, was from Fort Myers and he ended up disappearing in 1996. The Fort Myers 8 case remains unsolved, but it's safe to say that Daniel Conahan Jr. is the prime suspect. That victim who had escaped him was attacked one mile from this dump site. Sadly, four of these victims are still unidentified, but their DNA is available at the University of North Texas. I mean, if Daniel didn't do this, then who did? He had this need to control, he had the Dahmer glasses, he has my vote. Another set of remains were also discovered in Northport in March of 1996, and in 1999, they were identified as William John Melaragno, or as his friends called him, Bill. Bill was a 36-year-old Cleveland native who had just moved to Northport less than two months before he was murdered. Remains were also found in February of 1994, and in April of 2021, they were identified as Gerald Anthony Lombard, or as his friends and family called him, Jerry. Jerry was 31 years old when he disappeared from Lowell, Massachusetts. His family says that he was somewhat of a drifter, and it wasn't uncommon for him to disappear from time to time. In April of 2021, detectives actually took DNA samples from Jerry's sister, his brother, and his son, which led them to be able to confirm his identity. This case is so, so sad for the victims and their families. They were just down on their luck. They were vulnerable and doesn't matter what their sexuality was one way or another. They unfortunately came face to face with a predator. Luckily, he's in prison now and he is still alive. So that's good. Hopefully he's miserable and suffering in there. I mean, he's on death row at Union Correctional Institution and he's what, like 68 now. So it's nice that he gets the slow torture of waiting to go to his execution since he loves to torture people so much. Investigators are asking that anyone with any information regarding this case are asked to contact authorities at... 941-639-2101. Now stick with me for just a little bit longer. It is time for this week's Missing Persons Spotlight. Dana Christine Smithers is 45 years old. She's from Monroe County, Pennsylvania. She was last seen leaving a friend's house in Stroudsburg, PA on May 28, 2022 and hasn't been seen or heard from since. Her friend Karen, who actually reached out to me regarding Dana's disappearance, said that Dana was an open book. She would have let anybody know if she was leaving, and she never would have just left on her own accord anyway. Karen saw her a few days prior, and Dana was just talking about summer plans and how excited she was for summer. Dana has a 25-year-old son, a 23-year-old daughter, and a 7-year-old daughter. 
Dana had a lot of exciting things coming up that her family says she never would have missed. She had her daughter's last day of school. She had her granddaughter's birthday party. And she even had an annual Memorial Day tradition planned with her family. On May 28th, Dana's youngest daughter, Penelope, wanted to spend some time with her father, who Dana still had a pretty good relationship with. So they all decided to go to a festival at the Happy Hour Bar and Grill in Stroudsburg. They all seemed to have had a good day, and when everybody went home, Dana decided to pop over to her good friend and neighbor Tara's house. They talked for a little bit, and then she left. And the last known image of Dana is on Tara's ring camera with her cell phone in her hand. That cell phone, her wallet, and her daily prescriptions were all found at home. Dana had a really close relationship with her youngest daughter, Penelope, and her family and friends again say, no, she never would have left Penelope alone for this long. I want you guys to all please take a look at this. Please share it so that we can bring Dana home. Dana is a white female, five foot five inches tall, about 165 pounds with brown hair and brown eyes. She was last seen wearing a burgundy shirt and black jeans. Anyone with any information regarding Dana's disappearance is encouraged to call the SARP Detective Robert Transu at 570-421-6800, extension 1029, or Detective Dan Knowles at 570-421-6800, extension 1046. This was Crime and Cassie. Thank you guys for tuning in. You can follow me on social media everywhere at CrimeXCassie. And don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you are watching or listening and a five-star review if you are listening via podcast. Oh, and one more thing. Last episode, a couple people thought I was serious at the end of the episode when I said, oh, Jerry Burns is totally innocent. I said it with a wink after. But obviously I'm a moron and not everybody watches this via video. So let me just make it clear. If I ever think that anybody is actually innocent, I will make that so, so clear. I will not drop a bomb on you guys at the end. I'm sarcastic. I'd like to, you guys know I'd love to roast these guys. They're idiots. His, his DNA was found. Come on. He's just, he's an idiot. So no, I was making fun of him. I was being sarcastic, but I love you guys and I'm sorry for the confusion. Happy new year again. And as always, lock your doors, wear your SPF. And if anyone in Dahmer glasses approaches you to make some money, run.